Now, Drew, who helped us with the introduction, is going to get our hearts prepared for worship. So if you'll all stand up, he's going to read from God's Word this morning. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on land on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and he the heavens gave rain to the earth, produced the, its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, whoever may will save them. Okay, Tom Ellsworth is preaching. Let's see you do that this morning. Tom, okay. All right. Good to see you. Uh, I don't get over here as often as I'd like to, and, and just seeing you all and getting to talk with some of you that I don't get to see on a weekly basis, it's really good to be here. Now, I got to tell you this. This, this doesn't count against the sermon time, all right? I walked in this morning, and I have absolutely been inundated with people telling me how good a job John is doing as, as the preacher here. <laughs> to which I would give a hearty amen. I knew that before he came over here. I've known that longer than you all. I have full trust in that. But when it was told me that, there was also the hint of money changing hands with regard to that encouragement of telling me when I walked in the door. The only problem is I haven't seen a dime of that money yet. So if you want me to believe it. <laughs> okay, all right. This morning uh, at uh, the east side uh, at the 8 o'clock service, Rondell Smith was there. This doesn't count against my sermon time either. Uh, Rondell, I don't know how many of you remember Rondell or not. Rondell uh, and Pioneer Bible Translators have been a part of our mission support. As, as a matter of fact, they're the longest running mission support that Sherwood Oaks has had. And Rondell was there this morning. Rondell preached for the Walnut Street Christian Church, which is who we were before the building sold on Walnut Street and we became Sherwood Oaks. And I mean, way back in the 60s when he was doing his training at Indiana University. He presented the church with a Bible. Now, they've been working on a translation for the Tatar uh, language, which is in Crimea. And so he was there this morning to give us the freshly printed Bible in the language of the people of Crimea. If you know anything about what's been going on in Crimea, uh, you know, with the Russian retakeover, it is a strongly Muslim area. Now the Word of God is available to the people in their native language. That is really exciting. And he said he told them when he presented the Bible with them for the first time about us and our partnership with Pioneer Bible Translators so that we have brothers and sisters in Crimea reading the Word of God for the first time in their lives in their own native language. I think that is fabulous. So when you all give and share out of the resources that you have, that's part of the work and the ministry that's going on around the world. Okay. John and I are starting in a series on, on Elijah, and I'm going to set it up this morning as we, as we get launched on, on this particular series. Elijah ha happens to be one of my favorite characters in the Bible. I'm inspired when ordinary people accomplish extraordinary things. Zig Ziglar wrote this. He said, I believe success 
is achieved by ordinary people with extraordinary determination. Now, CBS airs a television show on Monday nights called Scorpion. It is about a team of geniuses that help the government solve problems all around the world. Whenever I watch Scorpion or whenever I read about the accomplishments of an Albert Einstein, I'm always impressed, but I cannot relate. I am no genius. You're probably sitting there saying, no, he's not, and I'm not. We, it's interesting to watch. Can't relate. When I read about the accomplishments of blind, deaf, and mute Helen Keller, or when I listen to the music of Stevie Wonder, who's been blind from birth, I am captivated. But I cannot relate because I've never had to overcome such odds just to get through and do something in life. When I read about an ordinary person who does something extraordinary, then I get excited because we're ordinary people. And that means just maybe we can do something extraordinary as well. For instance, are, are you familiar with the name, name Jack Andraka or Andraka? Uh, Jack lost a family member to pancreatic cancer. And uh, probably most of you realize that when, by the time a person learns they have pancreatic cancer, it's oftentimes so advanced that, that the uh, chemo or radiation or surgery doesn't, doesn't help. 2% of people who learn that they have pancreatic cancer survive. And it's because we don't detect it soon and quickly and efficiently. And he's worked on, on getting, and, and he's come up with a good plan that looks like it's going to work. Here's an ordinary guy who was touched by a tragedy and said, I'm going to make a difference about this. By the way, did I mention that Jack did this before he turned 16? Wow. How about Pam Coner? Pam read in a newspaper, just a newspaper article about people in Pembroke, Illinois, who were without food during the last week of the month. They just, they just didn't have any more to get them through. So she studied the needs of the community. She called a minister who worked in that general area. And then through her child care business, she convinced 17 families that, who, whose children she took care of that in the last week of the month that they would partner with 17 families in Pembroke, Illinois, and, and that they would send food. Well, that started working really well. In just seven years, the original volunteer contingent of 17 families grew to 16 chapters throughout the country, serving 17 communities and 400 families. She just read an article in the newspaper. She's an ordinary lady, but did something extraordinary. When I read about folks like Jack and Pam, I get excited because I believe that God can do extraordinary things through ordinary people. That's who we are. And that's what God has been doing throughout history. And that, folks, is one of the reasons why I like Elijah. Because Elijah appears in Scripture to be an ordinary person. Did you pay attention when Drew read just a few minutes ago? Listen to what uh, first, uh, James chapter 5, verse 17 tells us. It says, Elijah was a man just like us. If God could use him in such a powerful way, and since I believe it's true that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then doesn't that mean God can use us? 
And you say, well, yes, but, you know, I've read enough to know that Elijah was involved in several miraculous moments in his earthly ministry. Okay, hear me clearly. Whenever something miraculous happens, God gets the credit. Elijah, it wasn't in his power. It was in God's power. I am not suggesting that God has to work miraculously in order to do something extraordinary in our lives. As a matter of fact, just the opposite. Do you realize if you read through the Bible how few miracles there really are? And yet God used people, thousands of ordinary people down through the years in biblical history, working providentially through the ordinary, everyday aspects of life. I love that, what James writes. Elijah was a man just like us. So how does this story begin? 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1 says this, Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. At that time, they didn't know it would be three and a half years. When James writes about it in the New Testament, they knew it ended up being three and a half years. Tishbite. That's not a lot to go on. You know, when Moses was born, his parents wanted to spare his life because there was a, an edict out by Pharaoh that all the boys would be killed. Put him in a basket, sent that basket down the Nile River. The Nile River was swollen and floody at that time. There were crocodiles in the river. It is a miracle that basket got from there to where the princess of Egypt was bathing. She took the baby, adopted him, raised Moses in the palace of Egypt. Samson Samuel and John the Baptist were all born to women who were barren, who prayed that God would allow them to have a child, and God answered their prayer, and they had a child. These guys grew up to be quite phenomenal leaders. But Elijah? All we know about Elijah is he was, well, he just shows up on the scene. No pedigree, no fanfare. He was from Tishbe in Gilead. And since no archaeologist has ever found Tishbe of Gilead, it, it is assumed it must have been a rather insignificant rural Jewish community. Now, folks, knowing that and knowing what James tells us inspires me to study and to know this great man of God and to learn from him because he was a man just like us. And yet, and yet he is the epitome of all of the Old Testament proclaimers. Elijah stands as the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. His name was synonymous with spiritual success for 900 years after he died. When prophesying about the coming of John the Baptist four centuries before it happened, Malachi could think of nobody better than to compare him to than Elijah. He said, I will send to you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He was talking about John the Baptist. And when 400 years later, Zechariah, soon to be father of John the Baptist, is inside the temple doing his work, the angel Gabriel comes to him and he says to him, he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah. When John the Baptist's message was just ringing throughout the land of Judea, people said, are you Elijah? When Jesus was transfigured on the mountaintop before the cross, it was Moses and Elijah that came to encourage him. When Jesus cried out from the cross, those who were standing at the base of the cross said, listen, he's calling for Elijah. No prophet held a greater respect or promise in the minds of the Jewish people than Elijah. And yet, 
He was a man just like us. So in the weeks ahead, John and I want you to see this character. We want you to see that God can and will use anyone in his kingdom to carry out his purpose and plan. Now, I don't want to hear this after the service this morning, okay? Listen up. Still awake? You know, we don't serve food on our side of town just because we know it makes sleeping a whole lot easier in a, in a worship service. If you're still awake with me, all right, here. I don't want to hear this after the service. Well, I, you know, I'm really pretty insignificant. I, there's, there's really not much I can do. I, I mean, I don't have any talents or abilities. Don't say that to me because I'm not going to listen. You may be an ordinary person. I'm an ordinary person. But what we learn from the Scripture is that God relishes using ordinary people to, to, to do, to accomplish extraordinary things. Never conclude that He couldn't use you. God is always looking for a person like Elijah, always looking for a person like you. Now, in order to understand where Elijah comes into the picture, you have to understand the setting into which he came. So I'm going to, I want to read to you from 1 Kings chapter 16. These are the verses that lead up to that passage I just read, Elijah the Tishbite, okay? 1 Kings 16 says, In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria for is, over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam and son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole. Asherah was the female counterpart to Baal. An Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. Now, folks, things are not always as they appear to be. At a glance, at this time in history, things couldn't be better in Israel. The economy was great. Israel was not at war. It was a, it was a wonderful time of peace. King Omri was, was a terrific king in the sense that he was a builder of the economy, and he built this grand city of Samaria that was the capital, at least he started it, and then it was finished by his son Ahab when he came to the throne. And speaking of Ahab, he was brilliant, daring, charming, likable, and rich. Everything you think you would want in a king so that he looks good to others around the world. His name, Ahab's name means God is a close relative. But he didn't live as if you would know that. Everything he did seemed to stand in contrast to that. And his spiritual legacy is summed up in these words. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. More evil than anybody before him. What an epitaph. How would you like that on your tombstone? Worst guy that ever lived in Monroe County. That's what we're saying. Would, I mean, who wants a reputation like that? Now, it would seem at a glance from a historical perspective that Israel had it all together. Economy, peace, handsome, popular king. A wealthy nation that was coming into poverty. Great poverty. Let me tell you what kind of poverty it was. It was spiritual poverty. 
Ahab made the mistake of marrying the daughter of a Phoenician king and priest of Baal. Her name drips with wickedness, Jezebel. Have you ever, got to know, has, have any of you here ever met a, a brand new baby girl, you know, gone to the hospital, you know, you're standing there at the nursery window, you're looking in the nursery window and say, well, what's her name? And somebody says, they named her Jezebel. <laughs> have you ever heard? Nobody. There's a lot of Bible names that get used today. Nobody uses the name Jezebel because it drips with wickedness. She is the one that brought the worship of Baal into the nation of Israel. She is the one that supported out of her own purse 450 of these idolatrous priests and prophetess. She induced her addle-brained husband Ahab to build a temple in the capital city to the idol of Baal. Now, I'm going to throw this one in. Be ever so careful who you marry. I really believe Ahab could have been a great king, but he chose poorly in the one that he married, and she took him down to that epitaph. The worst king did more evil than any before him. Be careful. If you're a young person looking down the road, dating right now, just be careful who you choose. Who you marry will impact the rest of your life. Well, that spiritual decline led to moral decline. Folks, I, I don't know if you realize this or not, but the rites and the ceremonies associated with the worship of Baal and his female counterpart, Asherah, are largely sexual in nature, and they involve child sacrifice. Historically speaking, Baal worship was the most degrading religious system ever devised. When the Romans, who were no, per, no paragon of virtue, when the Romans encountered the worship of Baal, it nauseated them. It, it, it appalled them. The Romans, the people who invented the cross, were appalled and nauseated at the rites and the rituals of the worship of Baal. And with this sport, spiritual and moral decline came the decline of Israelite society. Verse 31 is a revealing verse. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel. Did you see the word? Trivial. Whenever we start thinking of God's word as trivial, God's commands, trivial, God's precepts, trivial, God's principles, trivial, we, that's bad news. So what did God do? He sent an ordinary man with an extraordinary message now, I've been writing sermons uh, and preaching them for 40-plus for years at this point in my life. Most of the time, um, I would guess that it, I, I, try to, I try to carve out about 15 hours a week to, to write a sermon. I don't know how much time John uh, gets to spend on his. I wish I had more time to spend, Take, but it takes about 15 hours, I think. Wouldn't you agree, John, to, to really do one and get it you know, off the ground? And, and so, you know, I've been, I've been doing that for a long time. Elijah's first sermon took very little preparation, and took 10 seconds to preach. I know what you're thinking. Boy, I wish Elijah was our preacher. <laughs> yeah, I know that. I know that. I get that. But I, I want you to know that of all the sermons I've ever written, all the sermons I've ever preached, if you put them all together, would not have the impact of this one 10-second sermon. 
Elijah says, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except that my word turns around, walks out of the palace, and it doesn't rain. And you say, Whoa, why such harsh punishment? Why would God do that to his people? Okay, prophets had been preaching to them for 60 years telling them, turn your, turn your lives around, turn your, your ways, repent, come back to God. Sixty years, and the, and the Israelites are just kind of, yeah, 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 we hear you, yeah, 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 we hear you. And they did nothing. So what, as a parent, what do you do when you've said to your child over and over and over and over, don't do that or don't do that or do do that or do, what do you do? You take some kind of action. If you don't listen, all right, then here is some action behind my words. So God puts action behind his words. You won't listen without a little bit of stress. I'm not going to let it rain. There's going to be a drought in the land to wake us up. Sometimes we need a wake-up call. Sometimes we need to be shaken to our core so that we'll listen to what God has to say. And since we are his children, it is not impossible for God to discipline us when we need it. When Bob Russell was still the uh, preacher at Southeast Christian Church, he told the story uh, of Charles and Nancy Heron. Now, they lived in, in, a, in a house in Louisville, Kentucky, that one night when they're asleep, Nancy heard burglars in the kitchen. Uh, they're upstairs in the bedroom, and she knew that if she woke up her husband, Charlie, that Charlie would try probably to go down and get rid of him and probably get hurt. And so she just let him sleep, but she listened. And she could hear him run, rummaging around in the basement. And then they started coming up the stairs. They stepped into the bedroom, shined a flashlight in Nancy's eyes. She saw the barrel of a gun. She screamed, and Charlie sat bolt up right in bed face to face with the gun. He screams. The gun goes off three times. The, the, the crooks flee. And, and they, are, they are there left in the bed just panting. They call 911. The police come. Charlie tells the police, he says, they must have been using blanks in their gun. He said, because nobody could miss at such short range. And the police did some investigating, and they found a bullet encased in the headboard. They found a bullet in the mattress between Charlie's legs, and they found a bullet in the pillow that he was sleeping on. That night, Charlie and Nancy went to stay the night with Charlie's aunt, who lived there in Louisville since the police investigation was going on. And Charlie's aunt was also a member of Southeast Christian Church where Bob preached. <laughs> Bob says the next morning he got a call from the aunt, and she says, Bob, she says, my, my nephew Charlie is here. He's not a Christian, but I think he would be open to the gospel. <laughs> Bob said he met with Charlie that day. He said he was the most receptive person he's ever talked to about the gospel. They made a decision for Christ that week, were baptized into Christ that week, and, had become, and, and were at the point in time when Bob was still preaching there, uh, faithful members of the church. Sometimes it takes a wake-up call to get us out of our lethargy so that we'll listen to what God has to say. Now, hear me carefully. Okay? If the biscuits aren't taking an effect on you right now, or the fruit, or the other stuff back there, hear this. I don't equate America as a modern-day Israel. We are not the modern-day Israel. The church is. The church, wherever it meets, is the kingdom of God around the... The church is God's people. But I do want you to know this. 
History does seem to indicate that when a people or a nation abandons God, abandons his word, abandons his precepts, the culture experiences a downward spiral. I was born smack dab in the middle of the baby boomer generation, and I've witnessed a lot of changes in my lifetime so far. Not all of them are very positive. David Roper writes this. He said, Christian assumptions and commitments once widely held no longer have the presence and impact they formerly had. Do you realize this, folks? Every year in America, 3,200 churches close their doors. That's 267 every month, 67 every week, 9 every day. Does that blow you away? It, it does. It just, it just overwhelms me. Nine churches in America close their doors every day. Now, I know that there are new ones starting. Here we are, coming up on a year anniversary of this one over here. That, that's fabulous. I'm, I'm thrilled to death about that. But to think about nine churches, the light going out in nine churches every day in the cities of America is frightening when you look at the future. Sometimes, sometimes we miss the obvious in what we're looking at. <laughs> a father was filling out the form to register his child in school, and under the form's question, language spoken at home, the father wrote, generally good, unless I get mad. <laughs> I, I think he missed the obvious on that one. So do we. Where does light shine the brightest? In the darkness, of course. So, we wring our hands in despair of our culture. We worry about what the future holds. But I'm here to remind you the light always shines best and brightest in the gloom and the darkness. Is God still working? Well, of course he is. Is he still making the difference in his kingdom? Of course he is. Could he use someone like you? Could he use someone like me? It may be hard for you to believe, but yes, of course he is. God loves to use ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things. And when it comes to being the church through the years, can I remind you of this? The best ideas that have ever happened at Sherwood Oaks, I believe, have come from ordinary people. Every year we have an international furniture drive where incoming international students receive furniture and things to set up a home. That came from a person in our congregation. We have international in-home Bible studies, family-run food pantries, families adopting college students during their years that they are here. When the, when the cyclotron was still treating cancer patients, we had the Hoosiers Care Ministry that was, treat, that was housing people when they came from all across the country and around the world. Don't be quick to dismiss your passions and your, and your dreams. If you're fervent about something, Maybe God is moving in your life to create some kind of ministry, some kind of movement in his kingdom through you. Look at Garrett. You already saw his video earlier this morning. Garrett was an ordinary guy growing up here in Bloomington, went to school. He's doing incredible ministry in West Dallas, Texas right now because he was open to what God was doing and he was willing to use his passion for helping others to make a difference. So what's God calling you to do? What's burning in your heart? If you're just coming for the food and a salve for your conscience on a Sunday morning, that's not enough. 
This has got to be life transformational. This has got to be life changing. This has got to be a God thing for the rest of our lives. We don't go to church. We are the church. So what is your dream and passion for that? We each have a Christian responsibility to encourage one another in the church to use our best gifts. Now, I felt a lot of encouragement when I came in here this morning. There there seems to be a really terrific spirit uh, among you all. Uh, and I love that. I love feeling that. I love sensing that. I love hearing it. And I saw people encouraging other people. I, I, I saw people praying together. You see, I think that's part of the value of the, of the church is that we encourage one another and help each other honestly to be lifted up. And there's the key. Honestly, help encourage. Some of you have gifts in one area that you don't have gifts in another area. There's things that God has given me to do, and there's things that God has left me off the list on. Nobody is gifted in every area. (laughs) Young man sang a solo in church one Sunday morning and never hit one note right. He knew he couldn't sing. Congregation knew he couldn't sing. But after the service was over, people who wanted to make him feel better went up and pat him on the back, told him he did a good job, told him he ought to keep singing, Nobody was honestly encouraging him until finally one, one of the older men came up and he said, put his arm around the young man and said, son, it is not your fault that you can't sing. You did the best you could and you should be commended for your efforts. But whoever asked you to sing this morning ought to be shot. <laughs> Helping the kingdom means being honest with one another. If you can't sing, don't sing. But if you can teach, then teach. If you can mentor, then mentor. If you can serve, then serve. If you can give, then give. You see, God has called us to make a difference in his kingdom. Ordinary people coming together to do an extraordinary job. So here's here's my challenge for you this week. Here's where we'll stop. Two things I want you to do. Number one, I want you to pray about your role in God's kingdom. What does God want you to do? Elijah was a man of prayer. Drew read that for us earlier. Elijah was a man of prayer. So if you expect to get very far into this process without praying, I think you're sadly mistaken. So this week, I want you to specifically pray about what does God want me to do. And the second thing I want you to do is I want you to sit down with a piece of paper, and I want, I want you to write down on that piece of paper all the things that excite you. What are your passions? What are your dreams? Where has God gifted you? Okay. I've, I've learned through the years that if you're excited about doing something, you'll generally do a good job at that something. If you don't like it, you won't. So start with your prayer. Figure out where God has gifted you, what really excites you, what you really enjoy, where your passions are, and then see where God can pair those two things together to make a difference. And obviously, if you haven't started with Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're going nowhere until you get that one done. That's the most important decision. That's the most important dream, goal, passion of your life. So while we sing and while we stand, if you have a decision to make, you come, will you?